0: Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast coming to you
1: from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Since 2020, we've been bringing you entertainment news and views, celebrating classic Hollywood, enjoying cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interviewing talented local actors and directors, and chatting with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K.,
0: And welcome to episode 67, the first half of a two-part interview. Today is 11-11-22. I I love the number 11, hence 1111 Studios. 11 plus 11 is 22. uh, Spooky. But much more importantly, the 11th month of the year is November, and November is National Native American Heritage Month, a special month for me. And uh, as part of my day job as a Native educator, last week on the 1st of November... I had the privilege of attending a virtual panel, which was part of Youth in Action Conversations About Our Future series, and it was called Reclaiming the Stage. It was a conversation with three very vibrant, supremely talented uh, Indigenous actors and playwrights who are reimagining Native representation on the stage. Today, we're very pleased to be joined by one of them, a director, multi-award-winning playwright, artistic director of Red Eagle Soaring Theater in Seattle, co-founder of Groundwater Arts, and a citizen of the Seminole Nation in Oklahoma, Tara Moses.
1: As a director, Tara's work has been seen in theaters in South Dakota, Rhode Island, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Oklahoma, and Georgia. As a playwright, she is the winner of the 2019 Native Storytellers Contest, a 2020 and 2021 finalist for the National Playwrights Conference, and the 2019 Native American New Play Festival winner, and her plays have been produced and or developed all across the country. Her plays have also
0: been taught and or are currently in the curriculum at Brown University, the University of Arkansas, the University of Arizona, UCLA, Oklahoma City University, Northeastern State University, and right here in Seattle, University of Washington. She's currently commissioned by Audible, Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program, Company One Theater, Alter Theater Ensemble, Kitchen Dog Theater, the new now commission with Laura Gunderson, Jiva Theater Center, Red Bull Theater, and Oregon Shakespeare Festival.
1: Wow. And if that wasn't enough, Tara is an MFA candidate in directing at Brown University, Trinity Rep, and holds a BA in theater from the University of Tulsa. She is also a dramaturge, consultant, and beadwork artist. Tara joins us from her home on Narragansett land, or what is colonially known as Providence, Rhode Island. Welcome to the show, Tara. Welcome.
2: Hello, to everybody. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, uh, Thank you so much for joining us. It's quite a,
0: a, a resume, quite a bio. We're so glad to get a few minutes with you. So uh, you grew up on the Muskogee Creek Reservation in Oklahoma. Tell us, if there were, tell us what kinds of opportunities existed for for Native youth at that time, and what drew you first uh, on stage.
2: Yeah. Um, so the short of it is none. None. <laughs> no, no. In my family, um, they are on the the Seminole Reservation, um, and so I spent time the Seminole Reservation, the Muskogee Creek Reservation, mainly Muskogee Creek. Yeah, uh, none. Um, I remember whenever I, my family moved us from Seminole to Muskogee, and uh, Muskogee Reservation, like part of it's really urban, the other part's not. And we moved to the urban portion of it, and you know, I went from a community where I was surrounded by natives to one where I was the only one, um, and like there was not at that time. You know, this is the '90s, early 2000s, and then you know, into the early 2000s, where you know, there's not the kind of program that there is now. Anyway, and so, um, yeah, didn't know theater was a thing, didn't know anything about it. I just knew how we told stories and what we did in our own communities. And so I got into theater in a very, very silly way. Um, <laughs> I was eight years old and I was walking home from school and I had a long walk home. It was, I don't know, two-ish miles. It was not good um, because we were using my grandparents' address so we could go to a different school. Like, it was a whole thing. Don't tell nobody. but I'm a little late now. Anyway, um, (laughs) my older sister, for some reason, she's a lovely human being. She got a ride home that day and didn't bring me with her. So I was then walking by myself as an eight-year-old, very bitter about it. I'm still bitter about it to this day. I will not lie.
0: You can tell. (laughs) (laughs) She knows.
2: Sierra, if you're listening, you know what you did. Um, And I passed by the Tulsa Spotlight Theater. And I would walk by it every day. I didn't think anything of it. I was I don't know what this is. Um, but that particular day, there were auditions being held for Oliver the Musical. And I remember learning about Oliver in school semi-recently. And I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute. They're going to need kids. I'm a kid. I can look sad. Why don't I go there? And if I have to go there after school, then somebody will have to come pick me up. And then I don't have to walk home. That was my exact train of thought. Uh, So I walked into the audition. I did not know it was odd to be an unaccompanied minor, but (laughs) there I was. (laughs) And sure enough, I ended up getting cast in like the chorus of orphans. And uh, what I thought was really interesting in that process, because I'd never done a play before, I didn't know anything about theater, is when, since my family was in Tulsa at that time, I felt a lot of, like a loss of community. Because again, I went from a place where I was like, in the majority again in a very teeny tiny place we're not in the majority anywhere but like in that little teeny tiny place of awoka and then now where i felt like that sense of community was lost other than ever i was home and whenever we were able to go back you know it was a two and a half hour drive you know which is not feasible for you know low-income native family but i got a sense of community doing that show again it does not compare to the sense of community within you know my indigenous one and then also like with the native feeder now but it, gave, it fulfilled a little bit of what I was missing. And yeah, and then I would just w- was in theater ever since because I was the closest thing I could to experiencing um, that sense of community that I was lacking for so long. But yeah, so got into my happenstance, uh, really just as a scheme to not have to walk home. <laughs> you know, a little out of spite for my sister, but stayed because I felt like I was part of something again. After you know being you know taken out of community and put into an urban environment, uh, which was you know kind of traumatizing for like a young native child, even though I was there with my parents and my grandparents moved with us too. Well,
1: I assume that must have had a big enough impact on you as a child, because I mean much of your work now focuses on creating opportunities for native youth. Is that what kind of led to that and your you know your work with uh, Red Eagle Soaring and some of the other stuff you do was the impact that it had on you
2: yeah absolutely i mean i remember whenever, uh, a board member approached me about red eagle soaring and like throwing my hat into the ring for that job uh literally the day the last day of submissions were due and he was like please just put something together throw it in. i think it'd be great and in my first interview that's what i talked about because they asked me similarly like how i got involved in theater you know and i told them that like just looking back if i knew that Native artists were in the theater, I think my life would have been drastically different because I did not know other Native artists existed until I was 21 years old. And I was full-blown in a BA program, you know, for musical theater at that time. Yeah, and it's just seeing the impact of Native youth being able to be within community with folks who are like them and tell their stories is just... You know, something that like, you know, I deeply have longed for and have continued to be in pursuit of because it has indeed impacted my career in so many ways, as well as my own spirit. And then, yeah. And so then working really diligently to ensure that I'm the last generation who had to go through a career in the theater like how I did. And so far, I think it's a group effort. It's not just me. It's a large, large group effort. But I think it's I think it's looking more and more like we might be I might be that last generation, which is all I want. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> well that's an amazing uh amazing goal in the work you've done so far uh and speaking of red eagle soaring can you tell us a little bit more about that program and what the theater offers
2: great yeah uh so red eagle soaring we are 30 plus years old i think 31 32 uh don't quote me anyway <laughs> actually do quote me i'm so sorry i should know um 1990 math Twenty, thirty 32 32 we're a thirty, thirty two 32 year old organization you know what? if you've been there a while you kind of forget um, anyway, and uh, we serve native youth ages 10 to 19. Uh, we put on multiple productions a year. Um, we do multiple workshops throughout the whole year. We also have an alumni program for folks who have aged out, as well as just for other native artists in the Seattle area uh, who want to have a professional theater um life oh my god the word just left me career anyway thank you thank you <laughs> I don't, the word gone english is not my first language so sometimes we get a little jumbled and yeah we provide them perfect like headshots every year of a professional photographer uh we offer them like continuing training workshops and opportunities as well as we produce shows uh that are multi-generational that they can perform in in our alumni program anyway and so in short how i sum up uh res is, is that we are a springboard for Native youth and for Native artists. So a springboard for Native youth into the theater, as, but mainly also like into like culturally specific ways of storytelling, into confidence, into leadership. You know, like we cultivate not just like actors, uh, but also like stage managers, also people who appreciate the arts uh, and who can bring their kids. You know, we there's a portion of our board who, Began with Red Eagle Soaring whenever they were 10 years old. And now they're on our board. And now their kids come to Red Eagle Soaring. And then same thing with our our alumni program um, of, you know, helping connect them to the national network, the National Theater Network, uh, as well as connecting with, like, Native Voices of the Autry in L.A. We have a wonderful relationship with the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. Uh, Anyway, and then I know I, myself, uh, Madeline Sayet, um, my former co-artistic director she also has hired our alumni in professional productions that we've done across the country. So, yeah, so it's a lot of springboarding natives into the theater, um, as starting as young as 10. I say that uh, there's a tiny tot workshop that I'm supposed to be teaching in a couple of weeks. And that's going to be for youth under <laughs> under nine, nine and under. Anyway, so excited for the itty bitties.
0: <laughs> yeah. For someone who lives on the East Coast, you, you've, you've made a big impact on Seattle. You're getting a lot of work done out here in, in Seattle. And I I can't say enough about uh, Red Eagle Soaring. I think it is phenomenal. It's it's literally the best. Uh, uh, you know, it is what theater is meant to be. Like you talked about that building of community, that sense of belonging for kids of all ages. And I think that everybody should support it, especially all of us Seattleites. They've got a, a special event coming up, uh, ResGiving, November seventeenth. I'm gonna be there. Terry, you're be gonna be there. there. I was really excited, so we get to meet in person this is the second time I've I've seen you met you virtually. Uh, first time I was just watching your webinar, but uh, yeah, it's gonna be great. It's a great team. It's a uh, an absolutely wonderful, a wonderful work that they're doing with native youth. So, uh, it's RedEagleSoaring.org. Everybody listening should jump on there. So Seattle, more work going on in Seattle. you we were talking. Your your plays have been taught or are currently part of the curriculum at Brown University of Arkansas, uh, U of A, UCLA, Oklahoma City University, Northeastern State, and of course right here at UW. I'm curious which, which of your plays are they studying at UW currently, or have they? And what do you think? What aspect of your work uh, do these do these institutions focus on predominantly?
2: Yeah, what's at UW? There's a lot of universities.
0: They're all they're all at <laughs> UW. Uh,
2: no, I don't think so. I think I think it's actually Quantum. If I'm not mis is it Quantum? It's probably Quantum. Uh, yeah. So uh, we'll put
0: our we'll put our research team on it.
2: Yeah, well, I should know. <laughs> this is why I have an assistant, y'all. That's why I pay them the big bucks.
0: Yeah, well, our research team is Greg and or I. So, <laughs> don't don't feel bad. Oh, I'm just okay. curious. I mean, is it is it the is it the is it your is it your heritage? Is it your background? Is it the is, yeah. is it the native themes in your work? I, you know, I mean, I I assume that that's probably what they focus on. Right, but maybe not. Right.
2: Every No, they do. I'm trying to think. I, I think I've written to to date, uh, I think, 13 or 14 plays, I think, currently, where we're at. And I think all but two of them are specifically focused around Native identity, around missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit folks, around tribal sovereignty. That's mainly the biggest thing. And currently, I'm working on a really large, ambitious project of a 7 play cycle, uh, and they're all interconnected. It's centered on the same family that spans about 150 years. And it's all centered on Native joy and not trauma because so much of Native work, um, understandably so, and that Native work needs to exist, exist and continue to be written. Um, but it's centered around our trauma and education of non-Natives to what we go through. I've written those plays. Quantum's one of those plays. I think at, Quantum was the one that was UW and or is currently there. I think it might still be there. Anyway, um, for sure. Because Quantum deals with MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, uh, and then all the things. MMIR, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives. A little bit easier. Anyway, it deals with identity. It deals with Blood Quantum. uh, It deals with the Indian Child Warfare Act, which is currently uh, being debated in the Supreme Court as of today, November 8th. I got a lot of feelings about that. it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Quantum is loosely inspired by my maternal grandfather. Um, His story is more uh, fleshed out in the Oklahoma cycle. Anyway, and so that's one people tend to flock to because it is very educational. It covers a lot of topics. Uh, it's also funny. It's also very tragic. It was just off-Broadway pri- at a primary stages for a reading. is being produced right now in Sacramento. So if you're in Sacramento, you want to see Quantum being produced, check out Matriarchy Theater doing great stuff. Anyway, so that's the one people tend to flock to a lot because it is educational. Um, that one, another play of mine called Bound, that is about the border wall and tribal sovereignty and how you know we extend past the colonial borders um, anyway
0: here's a question for you for us theater nerds are any of your plays available to to read i, oh, I love i love them. reading plays are they okay are they where where can those be found
2: yeah new play exchange new so play i'm on new exchange. play okay. exchange all of my plays are available for download if you're going to read one i will say if you're going to read one and it's like what is like one that i'm like this is me this is my voice it's not educational But you'll learn a lot through just seeing authentic Native people. Uh, The play is called Snag. Highly recommend. It is the second play in the Oklahoma Cycle. Uh, It's a rom com, the world's first Native rom com, we think. (laughs) My caveat we think. We don't know for sure. The first Uh, of many. (laughs) First of many. That's true. It's (laughs) since inspired a couple other friends of mine, and now they're writing their own rom coms. I'm like, yes, more Indian rom coms. Anyway, it's very funny. Uh, For folks who don't know, Snag is uh, indigenous slang. Uh, it can be both a, a noun or a verb, uh, but basically it means fuck. So it can mean the person you're fucking or the act of fucking. Snag, snagging, your snag, your hometown snag, who you snagged last week. It's a great word. So that tells us what the play is about. It's very good.
0: <laughs> and you <laughs> and said it wasn't. You said it wasn't educational. We're already learning stuff. That's yeah. true. That's true.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I think you can like learn from authentic representations that yes. where the intention isn't to teach. And I would say Snag's intention is not to teach. Snag's intention is to be an authentic representation of a Native love story set in the 70s. You know? So that's fun. We love that.
0: Yeah, sounds like fun. And what what was the website again?
2: Uh, New Play Exchange.
0: New Play Exchange. Okay, great. We'll get that linked in our show notes along with your social media. So folks yeah, can, find, yeah, yeah. can find that. And also,
2: people, you can just like tweet at me. I'll email it to you. I am not shy about it. Uh, I'm sure my uh, new agent's kind of mad
1: about that, but, you know, it's fine. <laughs> well, one of the, the foundations of, of indigenous culture is around storytelling. You mentioned Madeline Sayet, uh, who was just in town performing Where We Belong at the Seattle yeah. Rep, which I loved. And I reviewed, sent her the review because it was, I thought it was, a, it was a great show. And you've worked with her, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, I was just with her on Sunday.
1: Oh, yeah, because she's now at the Public Theater in New York. Yep. But how have you drawn uh, on that rich history in your background as a storyteller on stage? You've you've mentioned a few uh, things, stories about your grandfather, but what else from your heritage do you think would work well on stage or screen?
2: I mean, frankly, all of it. You know, I uh, I got some uh, hot takes that the Greeks did not invent the theater. You know, indigenous people around the world been doing theater far longer before the Greeks figured it out. Anyway, and so every element of what I create as a playwright, as a director, is rooted in those traditional uh, ways of telling stories. So it's very communal. Uh, it's very circular. It's not hierarchical. The stories I tell again now, again, every, you know, every native goes through this, um, <laughs> where you go through your education phase, and then you're like, I'm over it. Anyway, so I'm over it. Anyway, but even now, um, the stories that I tell, the way that I write, the dialogue, the way the characters speak. The way they interact, the present of the presence of spirit, um, both you know capital S spirit as well as spirits, um, you know that's part of our realism. I've heard a lot of discourse around like, oh, this is not contemporary re- dramatic realism because like there's ghosts in this play, you know da 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 And I was like, well, that's part of our reality, so it is contemporary dramatic realism realism work, you know. It's not you know something else. Anyway, yeah. And so it's just like, it's, it's, it's kind of hard because it's like it's baked into every word that's on the page. And then as well as like baked into the process, because as a director, I will say this is a concept I did not invent, the words I did put together. So that was me. The term is me. The concept's not me, everybody. But it's creative sovereignty, uh, which is sovereignty is defined as the inherent ability to self govern and then creative, pretty self-explanatory. So put it together it's the inherent ability to self-govern how you create. I mean, as a director, that's how I operate with my rehearsal room. Every artist, um, designer, actor, everyone in between, um, they have the inherent ability to self-govern how they're going to bring their character to life, how they're going to design. You know, I'm not very much like, no, I don't like that choice, pick another one. Uh, as long as it's within the world we're building together, because is where my creative sovereignty lives as a director, is the world, great. And there've been many, many processes where I've disagreed with an actor's choice, I've disagreed with a designer's choice, But again, I was like, well, it's within the world. I'm not going to violate your creative sovereignty. Let's go forth. You know, and that's not how um, directors tend to direct. You know, Uh, that's not how I'm taught my MFA program to direct, you know, (laughs) so on and so forth. Uh, And every single time, it's always resulted in a more nuanced, a deeper, a better production um, that extends way past what I can imagine that folks have full ownership on. Anyway, so yeah, so everything from how it's written, content of what it's written, how it's staged, how it's put on stage, how I work with other collaborators, it's all deeply, deeply rooted within, you know, my people's traditional storytellings, which go back hundreds of thousands of years. And even some of those stories make their ways into plays that I write. Like, I think I currently have one play that's a 25,000-year-old story in it. I think it's that 25,000, around there.
0: I really like that the concept of of creative sovereignty you know, the idea that people, when they're allowed to bring their best, they do. When they're really? allowed that creative freedom and, and the ability to tell their story within that larger world, like you said, that you've created and you're overseeing or, or shepherding as a director, they will bring their best. And it may not be the way that you envision it, but it's still going to be better than probably anything that you could have fabricated for them.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and it's such a more freeing term than, um, I mean, people throw around artistic license, which is almost an excuse or a justification for taking something and flipping it around or doing something, you know, taking something that's original and playing around with, it. but creative sovereignty seems more layered and more complex. And, and like I said, more freeing than some of those other phrases that people have bandied about.
2: Right. Right. Cause I think what's important about creative sovereignty is, is that it's not, um, it's not like a phrase that, you know, it's just like, we're here. Um, it's rooted in thousands of years of deep, deep cultural tradition around storytelling. Uh, and then I just came along and slapped two English words together to help people understand what it means. You know? <laughs> uh, and so like, you know, the phrase came after the actual practice uh, versus the phrase of practice coming together semi new. Um, so I mean, I think that's why also um, it's worked so well because I've used it exclusively. Uh, I don't know, the past, I think seven years of my career so far. Um, And every single time it's always worked out well. Don't get me wrong. I get some people to get on board, you know, it takes them a minute because, you know, it's kind of, you know, it can be a little unnerving to all of a sudden have artistic freedom. (laughs) You know, I've had a few designers be like, what, I need you to tell me a color or I need you to tell me yes or no. And I was like, well, number one, I don't believe in the binary. I was like, number two, what is your yes in here? You know, anyway, but at the end of the day, designers love me. I love designers. It all works out great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've got a, a hand in, in really every element of the of, of the theatrical creative process. I'd like to know, what was your transition like? Uh, you know, you started acting at a young age. How long did you act for before you jumped into things like writing? And then now you're also a dramaturge. Now, that's something I admit I had to look up. Um, if you could explain <laughs> what that type of work is. And then and then a little bit about your transition.
2: Yeah, the short answer is spite. <laughs> <laughs> Short answer. Um, but I mean the hopefully not too too long answer. Uh, so yeah, I was an actor until um I would say it was about twenty years old, twenty twenty one around there. I you know I worked professionally. Um, I was almost on Wizards of Waverly Place. You know, I have a fun story about that for a different time. A little bitter about it still but it's okay
1: <laughs> that where the spite comes yeah, in it's there's a lot of spite and bitterness
0: got to... they, kept, yes! they kept me out of they kept me out of waverly place so i turned to directing
2: that's true <laughs> no i'm just kidding uh yeah no no i joke i am an aries after all you know i love fire i love chaos but so i went to uh to undergrad to study musical theater performance um so you know singer dancer actor all that jazz and I go to my program, and uh, I'm the first Native person they've ever had. That's a usual for me, unfortunately. And I was also one of three people of color in my program. And uh, very quickly, I learned that uh, I was not going to be cast. Um, and I was cast in one main stage production. It was Our Town, of all things. Uh, and I was like one of the dead people in Act 3. You know, I was just like a random towny person. Um, that was it. Anyway, and in one of my juries, like, you know, our feedback things, the head of playwriting, actually, he told me that I was difficult to cast because I looked like a Puerto Rican. So that was fun. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I had all white faculty, not a single person intervened. It was a whole time. You know, I mean, I forgot what I said to him, but I said something that was that. Oh, no, I remember what I said. I said, yeah, I was like, you know, uh, I guess one would say that would make me racially ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I thought that was funny.
0: <laughs> what else What else can you say in a moment like that?
2: <laughs> right, right. Anyway, and so, and I also got a lot of feedback from faculty whenever I would audition and I'll be cast. I'd always go get feedback. I was like, what can I do better? Da-da-da-da. And it's always um, the demographics of the ensemble or, oh, uh, for Glass Menagerie, they're like, oh, this is a family. They're all related. And so it was all racism. Uh, and so I learned how to be a good stage manager. I learned how to build sets, paint sets, make props. I didn't learn how to sew costumes. I should have done that. That's one thing I do regret. <laughs> anyway, I learned lighting design. I've been hired as a professional lighting designer. I also, fun fact, went to that same head of playwriting and I asked him to take his course. He had to approve everybody. He, oh why guy what you expect? What do they do? Anyway, and uh, he told me he didn't think I had anything to add to the American canon as his excuse for not taking playwriting. Oh, I know. He his words now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, never took a playwriting class. Uh, I did take a, direct, a directing class and I did direct my senior year. But I was always like in pursuit of being in a position where I could create opportunity for others since I was just so systematically shut out. Uh, so that's how I left acting was is that there wasn't space for me. And for reference at that time, a single Native production had not been produced on a Lawrence stage On any main stage. The first one was produced, uh, I believe, in February 2017 at Arena Stage, if I'm not mistaken, which is recent. And again, I didn't know Native theater artists existed. I asked my faculty about that. None of them had any help. Uh, And it wasn't until I found an old anthology of Bill Yellowrobe's plays in the basement of my campus library. So, you know, what does that tell you? Anyway, that I was like, wait a minute, what? This man exists. This Anishinaabe man exists. And then went through a rabbit hole, and that's why I learned of Madeline it And I was like, what? I can do an if he does win. But yeah, so I transitioned to directing uh, pretty quickly, even though like I whoop, stage managed seven operas in you know, a summer, it was a lot, I was very good at it, but I was like, this is not what I'm, this is not giving opportunity to others. And directing I found was a way where I had a lot of actual power and agency in the room to build the rooms that I wish I had. And then playwriting was an accident. In 2017, I wrote my first play Mainly, I was angry uh, about the women's march that happened in D.C. I lived in Washington, D.C. at the time. There's a lot of white feminism happening. I was not having it. And so I was like, I want to make a Facebook post about it. I never do, but I'm gonna. But I opened up a Microsoft Word document so there'd be no typos, so nobody could be mean to me. And before I knew it, the sun came up, and I wrote half of my first play sections. The next day, I finished it. The third day, I edited it. Uh, It had a reading a month later, and it's world premiere production in Boston about six months after that. And then, yeah. So it was wild, yeah. Uh, and that's how it's been with every single play I've ever written. It, they've all been written in three days or less. I have no control over it. It just comes out. Anyway, and yeah, I've not taken a, any playwriting class. I've taught playwriting classes, which I think is kind of funny. Anyway, so I'm kind of holding on to that. That's my little bit of spite. And I was like, take that. Ooh. But yeah, so that was an accident because it felt as though I needed to say things. Uh, and it just came out that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's always been a It's always, it's always been because of racism, you know. I mean, even in high school, my AP English teachers would tell me, oh my gosh, yeah, you're so passionate. But, you know, we don't think that your voice is quite well suited for academic writing or like isn't suited for writing. Again, I was the only native in my predominantly white high school. Anyway, that's just how it always was. But yeah, so that's why I joke the shorter the answer of it is spite. But the still short, but longer would be, you know, it's all, I'm just so focused on the next generation, the next seven generations, frankly, and making their career in the theater much better than mine has been. Um, more opportunities for them to like live authentically and not feel as though they need to center whiteness or like feel as though they're being forced into an educational position if they don't want to be. I mean, there's a lot of times I want to be. You know, I do teach. You know, I do want to be there too. Yeah, that's why I've done all the things. And also, I think you become a better theater artist if you understand how all these other jobs work. Uh, you know, it's one thing from understanding. You know, it's another thing from doing it. And also, just for me, I just wanted to learn as much as humanly possible. So that way, whenever people be uh, trifling, I can be like, you know, that's actually not how it
1: goes. (laughs) (laughs) I know for sure that's
2: not true, you know? Or, you know, some terrible white, predominantly white theater is telling me, oh, we can't do this costume thing because it's gonna, the quick change and we don't have enough wardrobe staff and this and the other thing. Anyway, and I was like, well, actually, if we just preset his clothes there and the actor can do that, we don't have to worry about short staffing and they can just boop it on and I can add more time. In the transition here. Da, 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 da. You know, I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't, you know,
0: I'd doing done a it a full thousand long times. Yeah.
2: Right. I've done it thousands yeah. of times for Little Shop of Horrors. That's not a play. You want to be wardrobe on. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And that's a wrap on the first half of our interview with guest Tara Moses. Thank you to Tara, and thank you to you for listening. Join us next week, Friday, November 18th, for the second half of our interview with Tara. And keep up with her in the meantime at www.terramoses.com and on Instagram and Twitter at, at Tara Tomahawk. all linked in the show
1: notes. And if you enjoyed episode 67, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. You can find all the latest on Heilmanandhaver.com along with all of our past episodes, stage reviews and popular segments like Get to Know a Theater, In the Mix, and behind-the-scenes artist interviews. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Highland and Hay